In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, massive heavenly creatures, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm from a people of unclean lips. And yet my eyes have seen the Lord, the God King Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I. I'm ready. Pick me, Lord. Pick me. Send me out. Go wherever you want me to go. And he said, go and tell the people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of the people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? How long must I proclaim that message to my people? And he answered me, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields are ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tent remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak trees leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed, the message of God, the gospel, the good news to all, will be the stump in the land. And so here we are at the final week in our Building Blocks series, looking at what it means to be a part of G2, to actively contribute to the life of this church through how we follow Jesus, how we uh, join in with community, worship God together. And last week we looked at give, uh, how we use our money, our time, our skills, our passions uh, to bless others. And now our final Building Block, Tell, uh, which is a bit of an awkward one, I think, because uh, it can be awkward for us to... Uh, think about how we tell people. I think we're worried that it's awkward for myself, for yourself, but also for the people that we tell, for our housemates, our friends, our family, our colleagues, neighbors, teammates. I think sometimes we worry that the idea that we would tell someone where we are between uh, 3.45 and 5 o'clock uh, on a Sunday and why we were there is something that people might not want to hear. It's something that might offend people or maybe even get them to crack, crack out the classic uh, good for you but not for me response that we so often fear. And yet, tell might feel awkward, uh, but I wholeheartedly believe, and I promise you it's not just because I'm doing this talk, uh, that tell is the most important building block of all uh, for the life of this church. Because you see, if we never told anyone about where we go on a Sunday, and why we go there, and who we're there because of, uh, there would literally be zero point in all the rest of the things that we do as a church. We'd have great coffee and, and, and snacks and cookies that are so caringly and lovingly laid out for us. But people in the world around us would never get to taste the delights of packed coffee's latest freshly roasted blend from the Guatemalan hills, or Asda's, well maybe not today, uh, finest mouth-watering, sugaring donuts. We'd sing beautifully crafted songs played for us by an incredibly talented and creative array of musicians, but no one out there would be any different as a result. We'd be 
a nice club with a good atmosphere and a friendly message that we wouldn't impact our city at all. If we never told anyone, eventually we wouldn't be a church anymore. We wouldn't see people come to know a hope that anchors their souls through the storms of life. Come to know a love that doesn't record any of their wrongs, a forgiveness that washes away all of their sin and their rebellion, and a peace that goes beyond all of their understanding. They wouldn't come to know a God who knit them together in their mother's wombs, who knows every single hair upon their heads. A God who journals every day about their life and has caught every tear they've ever shed. A God who fights for them with the fierceness of a mother bear robbed of her cubs, who leads them with cords of kindness and who loves them with an everlasting love. You see, the world around us would never come to know an unchanging, compassionate, gracious, steadfast and faithful God whose mercies never end, whose kindness and patience never wavers and whose presence never abandons his people. For some of us uh, in the room, this may be the first you've heard of this God or maybe something in the words you've just heard has stirred something within you that might have lain dormant. And before we uh, go any further with thinking about tell, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to respond right now. Uh, Not to me, not to my words, but uh, to those words describing the God who knows you intimately and who loves you unconditionally. As I pray now as well, if something is stirring uh, within you, I really want you to uh, pray this prayer along with me in your heads. And then afterwards, uh, you can practice what I'm preaching and tell someone that you've prayed that prayer. So let's all bow our heads just for one second while I pray quickly. God, I thank you that you know us intimately. I thank you that you created us and that you care for us and that each and every single person in this room is precious to you. I thank you that you offer us forgiveness, that you uh, love us in spite of whatever we've done or thought or said in our lives. And God, I pray for people here today who need to uh, encounter you again for the first time maybe or just coming back to you. God, I pray that they would come to you and know that you are a God with your arms wide open who rejoices for them. God, we repent and we confess to the things where we've uh, turned away from you and rejected your plan and your purpose. And God, we accept your uh, free gift of salvation again today. Amen. You see, we're only a church if we tell, aren't we? We're only a called out people marked by our love for God, for one another and for the world around us if we tell of that love to others in our words and our actions. We're only the ambassadors of God, his co-laborers on this earth, his hands, his feet, his representatives, his body, his bride, his messengers, his missionaries, whatever metaphor you most relate to. If we actually tell someone else about him, about what he's done for us, what he's done for them, about what he is like, about God's character, his nature, his promises and purposes. For generations, scholars, theologians and everyday people like you and me have been absolutely perplexed by the mystery that God chooses us, chooses humans to share this good news. He chooses to work with us as humans and crucially through us in order to bring light, life and love to the world he created. We read in the Bible in 2 Corinthians 5 uh, that God calls people through us and our words and how we tell others about him. And the word often used in the New Testament of the Bible about uh, people who tell others about the good news of Jesus is the phrase evangelist. And the word evangelist basically means someone uh, who seeks to win others to their cause, often through uh, public speaking or actions. Um, An evangelist in today's culture has a bit of a bad rep, I think. It may conjure up images of a a beautiful American preacher with false white teeth that glint and sparkle in high definition as they implore their audience to part with $500 a month to help them rescue souls for Jesus that they then might spend on a private jet. It might remind you of that uh, doomsday preacher you encountered outside the tube one time in London who told you that you needed to repent or burn in hell. Evangelist is a word that might have a bit of a bad rep for us in today's culture. 
And the concept of evangelism, of telling others, I think it's frowned upon in, in the modern Western world. And a large part of that for me is that I think we're limited in our culture by the concept of epistemological pluralism. Repeat that after me. Epistemological pluralism. Ten times fast? No, joke it away. So an epistemolo- epistemological pluralism is the idea that there isn't one... Uh, kind of consistent or right way of approaching truths about all the world. But rather, there are many different approaches, and not one of them is better than the other. Not one of them is right, and one of them is wrong. Uh, so Christian evangelism, in that context, is a big challenge, isn't it? Because we're, we're daring to claim that we hold absolute truth, and we're daring to challenge other people's definition of truth. That's a bit offensive, a bit controversial. And we can get so worried about the impression that we leave on people, what this might do for our reputation, or even the reputation of, of Jesus, and how we tell others at him. Uh, side note, as if we could ever tarnish uh, the reputation of the creator of the heavens and earth, the victor of a death, pain, and sickness, who came to earth fully God and fully human to win for us eternal life, as if he's ever let down by us, pressure's off with that. And so within this context, to overcome the challenges that we face, the fears we have and the oppositions we may encounter, I think there's a few criteria that we need to tick in order to help us be impactful tellers as a church. Uh, and we need to know our what, believe in our why, and care for our who. And we're going to be thinking about these things today. And before we go into this a bit more, uh, let's pause. And I want you to chat with the people next to you on your table. Uh, who do you think is or are the best evangelists of today? And this doesn't have to be Christian. So this could be someone that's good at convincing it, winning others over to their cause through public speaking or action. That's the definition of evangelist. Peter Kay, Jamie Oliver, good. Brian Cox, nice. Anyone else? Donald Trump, Bear Grylls, good. Any more? Greta Thunberg, good. Greta, I'm going to stick with Greta Thunberg because that leads into what I think one of the answers to this is. And I think one of the best evangelists uh, is actually not an individual, but it's a group of people, uh, which is Extinction Rebellion. Um, been in the news this week for some slightly controversial actions, so don't judge them just yet. There they are, rebelling for life. And also respect your mother, which is a nice message, isn't it? I know it's the earth, but it's also good to respect your mother, isn't it? So I think Extinction Rebellion are an interesting example for us because uh, they really know their what. They know the science and geography. They've got brilliant statistics around man-made climate change. They certainly believe in their why of calling people to action. And I think they really care for their who in the sense of caring for Mother Nature. But also even in calling corporations and politicians to account for their action or inaction. They're confident. They're convincing. They're undoubtedly controversial. um, But they have got a lot of attention for what they've done. They've got a lot of attention in doing controversial things in order to speak of their what, tell of their why, and engage with their who. And I think for us as a church, for for people with something great to shout about, uh, we need to be willing uh, to realize that sometimes telling others might mean we have to do wacky things. Maybe not uh, chaining yourself to a tube train or whatever they've done, um, but there are some really creative and engaging ways that we can tell others about Jesus. And we've got a nice little video to show you from some of our own G2 students in the past few weeks who have carried this out. So this is a bunch of our (laughs) students on the Uni of York uh, campus in Freshers' Week uh, a couple of weeks back who were dressing up as Jesus and um, telling people about church, inviting them to church, inviting them to know Jesus. And the heart behind this was um, basically to make Jesus the biggest name on campus. They use the phrase a lot in student life of Beanock, biggest name on campus. So they were saying, why isn't Jesus the biggest name on campus? Why isn't he the one that we point to and shout about and celebrate? And they did this, and they got a lot of attention. Uh, Emmy can tell you more about the reaction they got from the student union, which is comedy. Um, but they did something, didn't they, that caught people's attention. They were willing to look foolish. They were willing to maybe embarrass themselves in front of their friends and housemates and lecturers in order to tell others about Jesus. 
It might for you, uh, you might not want to dress up as Jesus in your office or on the school playground or wherever you find yourself Monday to Friday. That might not go down too well. Uh, but there are other ways, aren't there, of being bold with our faith, of being bold in telling others that can help us have an impact. Let's look more closely at our Bible passage for today and seeing what it means to carry this good news. And we'll see there is always a cost to us. There's always going to be a risk to our reputation and our status, just like our students in dressing up as Jesus or Extinction Rebellion. But at the same time, uh, it's easy for us because we know of the eternal hope the message of God carries. And we only tell from a place of commissioning from God. So if you've got a Bible with you or a phone, um, please get out Isaiah 6. It's kind of sort of in the middle after Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, if you don't have a Bible app, if you don't have that, you can Google Bible Gateway and Isaiah 6 will pop up there as well. That's a good way to get it up. If you haven't got a phone or a Bible with you, maybe share with the people next to you. Um, I read this out at the start, so you should be familiar. There he is, Isaiah, original hipster. What a beard. Cool. So Isaiah is a really interesting uh, character. He's a biblical prophet who is in the 8th century uh, B.C., his name uh, means Yahweh is salvation. So he literally does what it says on a tin, doesn't he? Uh, it's in his identity to proclaim who God is, to proclaim that God is salvation. Um, he can't beat around the bush there. Uh, Isaiah's a great example for us of someone who really knew their what, their why, and their who when it came to telling others. His what was a message of reconciliation and hope to a people in rebellion. His why came from a motiva- the motivation of a vision of, of God and the goodness of God. And it's who were his people in Israel. The book of Isaiah features many prophecies, predictions from God about the future, to speak to the nation of Israel and the world about future events and the coming grace and glory of God. God's plan to bring about salvation, justice and righteousness through the coming of Jesus. Isaiah spoke to a people rebelling against God, turning away from him, seeking truth and answers to the life's big questions in a whole range of different religions, spiritualities and belief systems. Sound familiar? The first five chapters of Isaiah speak of his frustration with the spiritual climate he lived in and his longing for God to bring about healing and redemption. And it's in that context that we have our kablamo crazy heaven vision of Isaiah 6. If you remember, Isaiah saw the Lord uh, seated on the throne in the temple. He has this incredible vision where he encounters God in this really majestic and powerful way. He said the threshold shook, the door shook in the temple. Uh, shaking is, in the Bible, a sign of the glory of God revealed. There's many examples of when shaking takes place and prison doors are, are, are thrown open, walls crumble down, the temple crumbles down, all that sort of stuff. Very often, shaking is a physical sign of God's glory, and it leads to people to confess their own failings and repent of their own kind of failure as hu- humans in the sight of the goodness and glory of God. Isaiah had this encounter, and he instantly said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm from a people of unclean lips. I know how bad I am. I know how bad my people are compared to your goodness, God, compared to your glory. This commonly happens in the Bible, of people face-to-face encountering something of the presence of God and being forced to change their ways in worship to him. Isaiah was blown away in experiencing the awesome perfection and majesty of the enthroned Lord God Almighty. The, word he, uh, the Hebrew word for when he says, I am ruined, uh, is nidmeti. And nidmeti can be translated as finished, cut off, pierced through, devastated, tr- destroyed, doomed, undone, silenced, ruined. He was completely and utterly moved by this encounter with God. This face-to-face moment where he, he witnessed the glory and power of God. It completely cut to the core of who he was. Isaiah was willing to serve God. He, 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 he had this pick-me moment, send me, I'll go wherever. 
only as a result of the free gift of forgiveness that he experienced from God. Only as a result of seeing the vision, seeing this vision of the goodness of God and being completely humbled to his own weakness in comparison. And that, I think, is where our telling must start. We've got to realize that we're not that good, that we're going to get things wrong, uh, but that our God is incredibly good and has done and will do incredibly good things for us, for us, in us, and for us. Most notably in forgiving our sins and rebellion, in cancelling our debt, wiping away our guilt, our pain, our wrongs, as we see in Isaiah. This is the gospel. This is the what, that free gift of forgiveness. And then if you remember, at the start of this talk, I read on a bit, didn't I? And we had a bit of a nasty message that Isaiah had to share. He has this pick-me moment. He's ready to start. And then he gets this slightly scary words he has to proclaim to his people. A really, really tough message, a really hard message, which would have no doubt had a risk of rejection, a risk of despisal, and a cost to him. Isaiah has to speak to the, uh, verse 8, to the ears and eyes, hearts and minds of his own people, to their inner and outer selves, knowing they'd reject him, symbolizing the recognition of their total inability to comprehend the message of God. Note that Isaiah wasn't told to force people into believing in Jesus. He wasn't told to force people into believing uh, the plan of God to come. There is never any obligation for people to accept the gospel. The God we serve is looking for volunteers, not conscripting people into an army. It's not how it works. And we have to be aware that as we tell others about him, as we tell others about God, the gospel does have a double effect. Uh, Malachi 4 in the Bible speaks of how uh, the sun melts and it also hardens when contextualizing how people respond to the message of God. So Isaiah had a hard message with inevitable rejection at the end of it. But there's still hope, isn't there? In verse 13, we, verse 12 and 13, we read of the terebinth and oak trees. And these are trees in the Middle East uh, that are famed for having the ability to have sprouts grow from their stumps. Even when they've been cut down and left as a stump in the ground, a sprout can come out of their stump. You still see them today in the Middle East. For Isaiah, for the, for the people of uh, Israel that he was speaking to, the message of reconciliation and redemption for all remained in spite of the ruin, devastation, and sorrow. The stump, the holy seed of the gospel at the end there, staying true. And Isaiah had this throne room vision in, in chapter 6 of the majesty of God. But he also saw the mercy of God in Isaiah 53. It's not going to be on the screen behind me. Isaiah 53 uh, Isaiah has a vision of Jesus, has a vision of Jesus coming uh, to earth. And he speaks of him as being a suffering servant with nothing remarkable, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, no beauty or majesty. He was despised and rejected by mankind, held in low esteem. So we go from Isaiah 6 and this majestic image of God is seated on a throne and able to bring us forgiveness and redemption. And then the same God, God made flesh Jesus on the earth with us. He's rejected. And Isaiah knew this would happen. He knew this would, would come. John 12, uh, a, ch a chapter of the book of John later in, in, the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. Uh, John one of, was one of the followers of Jesus, uh, with Jesus in his time on earth. He referred back to Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 uh, to explain why at the end of uh, John's account of Jesus' public ministry, that Jesus was still rejected. Even Jesus, God made flesh, God before the eyes of the people, was rejected. John gives us 12 chapters full of Jesus performing miracles in front of people, turning water into wine, raising people from death to life, healing physical and mental illness, opening blind eyes and deaf ears, and yet the common people, the religious leaders, the political leaders, all still rejected him. And even those who did believe in Jesus refused to publicly acknowledge him often. John, John writes, Many among the leaders believed in him, 
But because of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue because they loved human praise more than praise that comes from God. That's a word, isn't it? Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I've come into the world as a light so that no one believes in me who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. And again, there is never any force for people to accept the message of God, is there? There's never a kind of conscription into it. That's his loving nature. He gives people the opportunity to respond in, as, they, as they want to. But yet Jesus here is speaking to people's eternal fate, isn't he? He's saying, those who reject me will be condemned. That's just what, this is what is stake. This is what is at stake for us as we tell people. As we tell of the message of hope, as we tell of the good news of forgiveness from sins, of redemption for all, of hope that the gospel carries. Um, we've got to remember that there, there is a big stake here. There's a big eternal fate of people at stake. We've got to keep going. We've got to keep telling. We can't be discouraged because we know that, you know what, there is going to be a pain to our message. There is going to be a cost to us, just like there was for Isaiah and for Jesus. We can't sugarcoat that. We can't pretend there isn't a hardship involved, but there is always a hope. And the reason for us as a church, as G2, is that we have Tell as a central building block at the foundation of all we are. It's because for us, we've encountered this life-changing gospel for ourselves. We've seen it change our lives and maybe those around us. And we've got to believe still that our city, our nation, our world can be transformed by the power of the gospel. And when we find it hard because we worry about the cost to our reputation, the risk involved, look what it was like for Isaiah. Imagine having to share his prophetic warning with his own people. No doubt he was rejected. No doubt he was um, despised for what he shared, just as Jesus was. And as I pre prepared for this talk and chatting to people on this community and, and read in Isaiah 6, I think there are things that really get in the way of us sharing the message of God. Maybe it's fear of rejection. I don't know. Maybe it's mocking from others. Could even be a sense of apathy of what Jesus can do in people's lives. Do we, do we think this message actually works anymore? Does it change people's lives? My good friend Cyril actually invited me along to a youth group back uh, probably year seven, year eight. My housemate Charlotte introduced me to Christianity in our first year of uni. And I spent a lot of time talking to my housemates, Lydia and Misha, about church and Christianity. Uh, well, I started coming to church because my, when my parents were younger, they went to church uh, and they brought me along and I uh, came and I really enjoyed it. And then the next week I asked my friend Emily if I could come to church with her and she Agreed. I started going to church um, because I met this completely mental person called Miriam, um, which she saved my life. And she's all about, she was just all about telling me all about this God thing. My good friend. Every single one of those uh, people in that video uh, are telling of who it was that brought them to church, who it was that told them about Jesus and the message of hope contained in the gospel. Every one of those people that you saw in that video have a story of transformation that came from encountering a God of majesty and mercy. The God that Isaiah saw in, in majesty as an enthroned king of a royal court and a God who we see in all of his mercy as a suffering and lowly servant with nothing about him that humans desired or were attracted to. The same God that we tell of today, the same God that those people came to know. 
And people will reject us, just as many of the Jews and those who physically encountered Jesus rejected him and his words. People may despise us. They may give you a bad reputation. They may never believe what you proclaim. They may never pay attention to you. They may never come to church or come to a small group or come to an event. They may never have that long, uh, deep God conversation that you, you want to have with them. But we don't grow weary of that. We do it in spite of that. Because our treasure is the holiness of God within us. John Piper, the American preacher and author, says that the holiness of God is his concealed glory. And the glory of God is his revealed holiness. That's what we're carrying. That's what we've been transformed by. We might be rejected. We might, the one we proclaim might be rejected. But we keep telling and we keep sharing. Because one person might be a Matt or a Laura, or an Abby, or a Josiah, or a Bethan, or a Lauren, or a Ryan, or a George, or a Rachel, or a Fran, or an Andrew. One person might hear what we have to tell them, and they might want to know more of that God of majesty and mercy. And it's knowing our what, believing in our why, and caring for our who, who helps, what is that, well, that's what helps us tell of the God of love to those around us. We tell the message of good news, the what of eternal life, forgiveness from sins, and life to the full for all those who turn to God and call on his name. We tell people our stories of how we became Christians when we first responded to God. Testimonies. A side note, you don't have to have a, a testimony of being saved by Jesus in the middle of a crack den to, to impact someone's life. Your testimony might be that you grew up in a Christian household and you faithfully sought after God in the midst of a, a culture which is hard to be a Christian, which is full of distraction and temptation. That is an equally valid testimony. That is an equally powerful thing that people want to hear. Also, we can share our life lessons, where God's been moving in our lives, where we've seen breakthrough in our lives and those around us. And then we live out, don't we, as messengers and representatives of Jesus in every sphere of society that we find ourselves in, with the people that we spend our time with, our who, with all the different gifts and passions that God's placed within us. See, how we live, how we work, how we play, how we drink, how we love, how we Instagram, how we Snapchat, how we tweet, all of our passions and activities can carry with them the light of Jesus. That is a literal show and tell to people of God's glory, his holiness revealed in us. Just like Isaiah's encounter that we've chatted about today, it is all, this all comes through the commissioning and equipping of God through his Holy Spirit, God's power and presence at work within us. That is God calling people to him through us. The writer Andrew Murray says that the one thing needful for the church and the thing which above all others, men and women, or everywhere to seek for with one accord and with their whole heart is to be filled with the Spirit of God. That is the context in which we tell, isn't it? To be filled with the Holy Spirit, to have this encounter with him, this commissioning from him to then go and tell as a church. And we've covered our what, we've covered our who, but um, I want to end in thinking about our, our, um, our why. And... Um, Particularly for those of us that sometimes I think we can get, we can forget, can't we, the power of the gospel. We can forget what Jesus does in people's lives. We saw that video earlier. But also we might even forget uh, the importance of why we're here in York. And I look around this room and I, I, I look around G2 City where we meet in the evening. And I, I see people who, who have stayed around in, in, in York or have come to study in York. And I think, you're not just here because it's a nice place to raise a family or it's a good place to study or it's somewhere that we enjoy living and we've got good coffee shops. There's more to being in York, isn't there, than just the nice things we're, uh, that we see here. Uh, there's an incredible legacy in our city uh, of the gospel. The man who helped end the formal slave trade, William Wilberforce, was an MP here. The great Christian social reformers, Joseph and Seabone Roundtree, were born, raised and lived in York. In the 1960s, a church leader, David Watson, uh, took a church of 12 people in the St. Cuthbert's uh, Church and took that into a church of nearly 1,000 people in just a few years. 
And I think as G2, as a church, we've got to believe that that same legacy, we can see that happen again. That there's got to be more to come in York. That God has more to do. And we've got to, as we go and as we tell, filled with his spirit and his calling, with the treasure of the Holy Spirit within us, let's remember the legacy of the city that we're in. Um, I don't think that I should still be in York, if I'm honest with you. I don't think that that's like the normal trajectory that I should have taken. I think, um, oh, I graduated from uni here uh, three years ago studying politics. And I think there's probably one or two other people who did my course who are still in York. Most of them gone to London and worked for the civil service and are trying to sort out Brexit. God bless them. Um, mm. And there's nothing wrong with what they've done. And there's nothing, you know, that, that's not wrong. They've done that at all. But for me, the reason I'm still in New York is because I really believe that there is more to come here. I really passionately believe that uh, we can see the good news of God transform lives, transform our city, transform our neighborhoods. Um, I've just finished working as a student worker here at G2. And it's been an incredible privilege to see students coming to know Jesus for the first time. To see people uh, who've in, had lives of despair and, and, and difficulty come to know a God of hope and a God of love. And I see it not just in students, but throughout our church. There are people in this room and people who aren't here today who have encountered God for the first time uh, in York and had their lives transformed. And I think we've really got to remember this. We've got to remember that our who is still out there. Our who is still walking our streets of York. They're sat at home today, wherever they are. And we still need to tell people of the goodness of God. We still need to tell them of what God can do for them. And in a moment, we're going to respond to this call. And I think for us as a church, for us as G2 Burnham, in order to go and tell, in order to tell with a fresh confidence and a fresh energy, we need a bit of an Isaiah 6 encounter, don't we? We need to come face to face with a God of glory. We need to encounter his holiness and be filled afresh with his spirit. That's how we do this. That's how we go. That's how we tell. So I'd love to invite you to stand where you are and the band are going to come up and lead us in worship. But before they do that, we're just going to take a few minutes just to... You band can come up here. Um, please stand. Uh, we're going to open ourselves up and we're just going to say to God, Here am I. Here am I. Send me. I know that you're in this church because you believe that there's more for our city. I know that you, you come to G2 because you believe that, that God can transform lives. Because you believe that there's hope for your your workplaces, your campus, your families, your friends, your kids, your neighbors, your parents, whoever it is. And I'd love to invite you to to open your hands out as a sign of saying to God, here am I. If that's you, if you want to serve God, if you want to go and tell his people of the goodness of God, just open your arms out in front of you.